This podcast is supported by Pentax Medical. Now, welcome back to our weekly endoscopy podcast. My name is Björn Remaken. I'm a gastroenterologist and endoscopist in Leeds. Today, I'm um, talking about the FLIP device, which you may or may not have heard about. It's a recent development in the assessment of achalasia. Then we're moving uh, towards the duodenum, where there's been a range of developments with spiral enteroscopy, celiac disease, and some worrying insights into multi-related polyposis. Now, therapeutics is all about full thickness colonic resection. Finally, on the topic of GI bleeding, I have some good news and some bad news, I'm afraid. Now, at the recent UEG week, there was some talk about the FLIP device. It's basically made by Medtronics. It was first launched back in 2006, I think. And it's a it's a 240-centimeter catheter, about 3 millimeter wide, with a, with a balloon at the end, which you fill up with saline. And then little clever electrodes inside the balloon allows you to measure the cross-sectional size and pressure at different levels of the balloon. In techie talk, they say it measures the luminal dimensions using impedance planimetry and a solid state pressure transducer. Anyway, this calculation of the cross-sectional area and the pressure allows calculation of a distensibility index, which I think is the main measurement with the device. The basic idea is that you place it across a sphincter, could be the anus, the gastroesophageal junction, or the pylorus, inflate it, and then you measure the, the, the stiffness and the distensibility of the sphincter at that point. Of course, it's, a, it's an uncomfortable procedure, so the patient is sedated, which means that you can't really allow for a, a functional assessment. So you couldn't ask the patient to swallow something and then see how the gastroesophageal junction relaxes as the food bolus comes down, etc. But it, it can be used for assessing the, um, the completeness, for example, of a poem procedure that you cut all the muscles and the, and the pressure's kind of gone in the sphincter, or at myotomy, for, intrasurgically, of course. There are two endoflip devices, both made by Medtronics. The endoflip basically is the measurement catheter I described, but then there's also the esoflip, which is a more firm three centimeter diameter balloon, which you can use to treat achalasia without the need for fluoroscopy. Because the device can't be used in wake, a wake patient who can actually swallow, is not licensed for use of diagnosing achalasia, for example. And another problem is that uh, there is no gold standard data to compare your recordings with. Um, there's been some research evaluating the opening dynamics of the gastroesophageal sphincter, but uh, the data I don't think is reliable or, or validated as yet. Anyway, there was a study published in Surgical Endoscopy by Campagna et al. Uh, back in June, which looked at the use of the FLIF device in assessing the sphincter intraoperatively during a myotomy in 32 patients. They concluded that it seemed to be useful in assessing that enough of the muscle had been cut. But more interestingly, they described that particular patients with type 3 achalasia had repetitive retrograde contractions and antegrade contractions. There's, there's stuff happening at the, the sphincter in achalasia that we don't quite understand clearly. 
Now to remind you, type 3 achalasia has always been the odd one out. Type 1 achalasia, of course, is the classical achalasia when there's hardly any esophageal contractility but spasm of esophageal junction. Usually responds very well to myotomy. Then you have type 2 achalasia where you have intermittent spasm rather than a more coordinated peristalsis and that can affect any part of the esophagus as well as spasm of the lower esophageal sphincter of course. Uh, type 2 echalasia responds to the very best myotomy. But then you have the, the weird type 3 or spastic echalasia where there's more sustained prolonged attacks of spasms in the distal esophagus in particular as well as lack of relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter. It may be a different condition because there's no loss of ganglion cells in the wall of the esophagus in type 3 achalasia, in contrast to type 1 and type 2. And it's also the least likely to respond to myotomy. And furthermore, patients with type 3 achalasia are typically 10 years older than in type 1 and type 2. It often takes 4 or 5 years before they, they're diagnosed. Now this leads me on to a study by Ikebushi from Japan, uh, published in Digestive Endoscopy, looking at the etiology of achalasia. Now, as you remember probably, the primary problem in achalasia is that there is a selective loss of inhibitory neurons in the myenteric plexuses in the esophageal wall. And the result is an increased activity of the excitation neuronal activity and a decrease in the inhibitory neuronal activity and that causes a failure of uh, relaxation of the sphincter and a loss of peristalsis. Now the current thinking is that the condition is due to an infection which triggers an autoimmune response. After all there's an increased prevalence of viral antibodies in patients with achalasia, particularly herpes virus and human papilloma virus and the measles virus I think has been implicated. And in addition patients with achalasia, and I didn't know this is three and a half times more likely to have other autoimmune diseases compared to the background population. Now this group from Tokyo has been looking into the possibility of um, herpes simplex virus being implicated. Uh, I should mention that previous studies looking for evidence of viral infections in achalasia have shown some conflicting results. Of course viruses have been in implicated because lymphocytic infiltration of the esophageal wall is one of the hallmarks of achalasia and these lymphocytes respond to herpes simplex virus antigens by increasing its proliferation rate and increased production of cytokines. And of course we know that herpes simplex virus hides in our peripheral nervous system and then moved by a retrograde axonal transport up to the nearby ganglia. And of course it's not rocket science to think that maybe these herpes simplex virus could set up a, a latent and chronic immune reaction ultimately destroys them. Anyway, this group from Tokyo looked at uh, microRNA. Uh, basically it's a single-stranded viral RNA which I think regulates some gene expression in, uh, in particular herpes simplex viruses for example. And they took muscle biopsies during POEM procedures in 11 Japanese patients and found viral microRNA higher amount in patients with achalasia compared to a control group of six patients who had esophageal cancer. Interesting. I think the evidence is now becoming quite compelling that uh, the herpes simplex 
viruses in particularly immune sensitive individuals is actually what causes achalasia. We have the model of course of Chagas disease when trypanosomiasis sets up a chronic inflammatory response autoimmune mediated in the esophagus and, and decades after the acute infection these patients, poor patients develop severe achalasia. Now we're going to stay in the Judeanum. Have you heard of the Olympus uh, motorized spiral endoscope? I think this was first launched a few years ago. I think Düsseldorf had the first publication of it in, in a video GIE publication. Basically, it's a, it's a, it's a spiral endoscope uh, with the motor attached to it. And it's said to be much faster than the normal double balloon endoscopy. I understand that uh, since the first case report, the machine has been modified and uh, a torque detection system uh, basically to detect that the motor is not kind of pulling too hard on the small bowel has been included. I must admit that I was always a bit worried about this machine. Just because it's fast doesn't mean that it's, it's good. Finesse is what enteroscopy is all about. Feeling the resistance, trying to kind of coax the endoscope into the small bowel without exert too much forces on the pancreas gland and the mucosa. Now I'm told that the new power spiral endoscope has got a auto stop feature and also a way of telling how much force has been it's exerting on the bowel. There was a recent big study from India by Ramchandandi where 61 patients underwent motorized spiral enteroscopy. The technical success rate was 93%, and average depth of maximal insertion 465 centimeters, which seems impressive. And uh, to achieve that kind of depth of um, intubation took an average of 40 minutes, and there were no major adverse events. Then a couple of uh, months later, another study uh, with uh, Düsseldorf, did the same study again, this time with 30 patients. Uh, and I think, reading between the lines, they set out to do better than the study from India. The, the Indian study reported that in 60% of cases, the whole of the small bowel could be examined. They published that the percentage of patients in whom the full length of the small bowel could be examined was 70%, 16% by the undergrade approach and 53 by the bidirectional approach. In the discussion, this group mentions that the machine stops when there's either a high resistance or no further advancements seems visible despite continuous rotation of the motor. And they muse that perhaps the reasons would be some fixed lesions, or maybe the small bile is simply too long or the endoscope simply too short. Of course, any prior gastric, small bowel, or even colonic surgery was a contraindication to its use. This group also managed to get an average of nearly 5 meters beyond the ligament of trites. The median insertion time was 26 minutes. This all sounds very good, but there was an overall adverse event rate of nearly 17%. This included deep mucosal tears, and one patient had a hematoma of the jejunal wall and a final patient has some rapidly resolving odinophagia. I do worry a little bit about this. Imagine if you got a new colonoscope and, uh, and you publish a study of 30 patients and said, well, it, it all went very well, but uh, five of our patients had some visible complication. You wouldn't be reassured by that, would you? You would want to see 
3,000 colonoscopies done with this new revolutionary endoscope before you thought, hmm, that's a safe piece of kit. Because Olympus is going to stop making the non-motorized spiral endoscopes, I've been told. So it might be spiral uh, or, or nothing from Olympus. Anyway, moving on. The next study did tickle me. It's from Sheffield, published by Penny et al. It's, of course, Prof. David Sanders' group who you may remember has convinced us that we need to take five duodenal biopsies to reliably diagnose celiac disease. Four from the second part of the duodenum and then a fifth sample from the duodenal cap. Now, on the face of it, they seem to be backtracking in this publication from the November issue of GUT. Uh, it's a massive study. They got research centers in, included from Buenos Aires, Italy, Amsterdam, Turkey, and America, and even as far as New Zealand. And they managed to clock up a total of 1,417 patients with suspected celiac disease. And they basically looked at the predictability of a positive TTG level in finding patients with celiac disease. Now, half of the cohort were patients referred to Sheffield, an expert center in celiac disease, of course, and they reported that the true positivity rate, uh, i.e. sensitivity, was 54% for a, a raised TTG level. The true negative rate, the specificity, was 90%. Um, the proportion of celiac in the test positive group was 99%, not entirely un unsurprising. Most of the patients referred with suspected celiac disease to Sheffield had celiac disease even if the TTG level was low. That's odd. Now there was a, a second study group of 500 patients referred for a, an endoscopy in, a, in another UK centre uh, to exclude celiac disease, presumably because they had uh, weight loss, anemia or maybe loose motions. And in this study cohort, 100% of patients with a raised TTG really did have celiac disease and only 2% of patients with a low TTG level did actually have celiac disease on, on biopsies. Now that's more reassuring. And then there was a final third study group from elsewhere in the world and 95% of patients with a raised TTG level really did have celiac disease but so did 90% of those with a low or normal TTG level. This is quite complicated, isn't it? Uh, the authors conclude that uh, a IgA TTG teeter about 10 seemed to have a strong predictive value at identifying adults with um, celiac disease and uh, supports the idea of a no-biopsy approach for the diagnosis of celiac disease. Now, that's, this seems to be a kind of complete turnaround. We've been previously told by Sheffield that we should take five biopsies, and now we've been told we, should, we don't need to take any. We only need to rely on the an elevated TTG level. Hmm. And anyway, the data doesn't quite seem to support this, does it? After all, in Sheffield itself, 87% of patients with a normal TTG did indeed still have celiac disease. On the topic of raised TTG, there was a publication from Tel Aviv, uh, Gus et al. They looked into a huge database of four and a half million and some 17% of these people had blood levels checked for raised TTG levels. As you expect, 
Only a small proportion were positive, about 1 in 600. But the surprising result of this study was that in almost half the patients, no further biopsies or TTG levels or any CLEC-related serology seemed to have been undertaken. You might think that these patients were kind of now very well managed by gastroenterologists, but that doesn't seem to have been the case either because a proportion of them had repeated TTG levels and they, they continued to be elevated over time. And perhaps that's another reason for doing a, an endoscopy. Then we're moving on to the, the condition you might have heard about called MITI. You probably know that MITI is one of these uh, inherited polyposis syndromes. Uh, MITI, M-U-T-Y-H, is an enzyme involved in the DNA damage repair. And patients with two autosomal recessive mutations in the gene have a particular predisposition to colorectal and apogea cancers. An international collaboration published their results of 394 patients in gastroenterology a couple of weeks back. Centers included Cardiff, Stockholm, Barcelona, St. Mark's, USA, Milan, it's all over the world basically. In this group of 394 patients with a median age of 51, uh, on average patients had three small Judean adenomas. In FAP, uh, you expect to have lots of adenomas really if the patient is 50. Uh, anyway, some of these centers were not particularly good at spotting Judean adenomas and finding Judean adenomas in 1 in 20 patients only. And other centers find adenomas in up to half of the examinations. Anyway, overall, it seemed as if 21% of patients did indeed have at least one Judean adenoma. And of course, in FAP, you expect up to 90% of patients to have Judean adenomas. Only a tiny fraction of patients, about 1.5%, had lots of polyps and large polyps. Uh, and uh, if they had FAP, that would have been called Spiegelman stage 4 disease. Now, in this group, I found 18 adenomas with harbored high-grade dysplasia, and half of these were smaller than 10 millimeters. Three patients developed judenal cancer during the follow-up, and none of these patients had lots of polyps. Uh, two of the patients who developed cancer had a normal gastroscopy nine months and 12 months earlier. So the study concluded that uh, the surveillance must have missed the early seeds of cancer in two out of the three cancer patients, implying that we should all try much harder in this group and perhaps do surveillance more often. Now, personally, my conclusion is that the evidence is against any benefit of judenal surveillance in MUTI. Precursor lesions may well be too small and too fast-growing to be detected. Now, at the same time, there was a publication from St. Mark's London on the topic of muti-associated polyposis in the colorectum. As you know, we should consider muti or any genetic predisposition if we find 10 or more adenomas at colonoscopy. Anyway, in this study from St. Mark's, where they have a big population of muti, uh, there were 134 patients. 68 patients developed cancer and the median age at diagnosis was 47 years, so not that different from uh, FAP. Uh, cancers, however, occurred in the context of few adenomas. And interestingly, the patients who had a segmental colectomy uh, and then postoperative surveillance afterward still appeared to be at at a high risk of developing a metachronous cancer. Five out of 30 patients develop cancer in this way. 
And again, authors concluded that uh, these patients need access to high-quality endoscopic surveillance postoperatively. <laughs> again, my reading of their findings is that these patients total pamproctocolectomy because there's very little evidence, well, no evidence really, that postoperative surveillance in this group actually gives men a benefit. Now let's move on to therapeutics in the colorectum. It's all about full thickness resection. Um, I worry a little bit about this because I, I tend to be referred patients for consideration of a full thickness resection. Usually very elderly patients who I'm told they're not a surgical candidate, but they've got a small cancer and they wonder if I can remove the lesion endoscopically. Now my resection rule number 15 is disengage if there is disease because it's likely that the patient may not cope well with a complication and in any event may well die with their early colonic cancer rather than from their early colonic cancer. Now one benefit of uh, a full thickness resection even if you can't completely clear the lesion is that you get a larger specimen so the histopathologist can calculate the depth of invasion. Now in truth the Ovesco clip mangles the histological plane so severely that uh, this depth of penetration is quite difficult to assess by the pathologists. And in any event, there was a study from Taiwan by Yang et al. in clinical gastroenterology and hepatology, which uh, did a big systematic review of uh, T1 colorectal cancer. They found uh, 17 published studies of uh, a total of almost 20,000 patients followed for an average of 36 months. And they basically found that the best predictor was not the depth of penetration into the colonic wall, but the presence of lymphovascular invasion. And of course, this is something you can sometimes even assess on biopsies. So the idea that you need a full thickness resection for a big biopsy doesn't really hold up to scrutiny in my mind. Now, as it happens, Phil Boger uh, et al. published the UK registry data on 68 full thickness resections. Now, this was a basket full of uh, pears and apples, and only 13 cases out of 68 had T1 cancer. To be honest, I'm not really interested in the resectability of little tiny submucosal nodules or some small polyps at the base of the appendix potential benefit of this technology is to remove early cancers. Anyway, there are zero resection rate that was three quarters. So it was a little bit hit and miss clearly. And there were complications in 6% of patients. At the same time, in the journal endoscopy, there was a larger series from the AMC in Amsterdam of 367 full thickness resection and 150 of these were because of re-resection or incomplete resection of a T1 cancer. And in 71 cases, it was the primary attempted resection of a patient with a small T1 carcinoma. Now there, our zero resection rate was 5% better than the UK series at 82%. So it seemed to be more or less the same, to be honest. The median size of the resected specimen was 23 millimeters and uh, nearly 10% of patients had an adverse event, which included delayed perforation, and two had immediate perforations, and there were three cases of appendicitis. This is presumably when they resected the, the stump uh, of the appendix because there was a polyp there. 
Clearly, we should think twice before we try to clear a polyp at the base of the appendix by the, the full thickness resection method. Furthermore, I must admit that I can't recall a single case when I have failed to clear a small, I mean small, less than 3-4 centimeter lesion, which lifted poorly or was in some awkward position. And, and if you think that a position is a bit awkward in the colon, I can guarantee you that it will not feel any less difficult once you attach the, the four centimeter long uh, Ovesco clip attachment to the end of your colonoscope. Now, to bring it back to my introduction to this topic of full thickness resection, as I said, I do worry about the surgeons referring cases to me because these patients aren't surgical candidates. Of course, if they're not a surgical candidate for an elective surgical procedure, the surest damage won't be a surgical candidate for, for an emergency colectomy either. A 10% perforation rate seems a little bit worrying, particularly as it could well, in, certainly in my referral cohort, translate into a 10% mortality rate. Anyway, finally, on the topic of rectal neuroendocrine tumors, as you probably know, uh, endoscopically, we have a green light to try to resect these, provided that they're no bigger than one centimeter. A study from South Korea, published in Surgical Endoscopy, looked at the best way to attack these. A normal EMR had a complete resection rate, or zero resection rate of 75%. If you do a pre-cutting EMR, i.e. cut a, a groove around the, the lesion, that increased to 91%. If you did a band ligation EMR, that was 93%. Or if you used what I call the pull within the snare technique, that's when you grab hold of the polyp and basically pull it into a snare. The, complete resection rate was 91%. So the writing is on the wall. The way to remove a rectal neuroendocrine tumor is not by the standard EMR technique. Personally, I'm gonna reach for my band ligation kit. Now we're gonna to conclude today on the topic of GI bleeding. As I said, I got some good news and some bad news. Now, what I call good news was a systematic literature review from Canada published in uh, Elementary Pharmacology and Therapeutics, which looked at the, uh, the benefit of an emergency colonoscopy in patients with uh, acute lower GI bleeding. They basically find that there was no difference in rebleeding risk in patients who had an early or a later elective colonoscopy. And they indeed conclude that there's no support for a role of early colonoscopy in the routine management of acute lower GI bleeding. And in most cases, it will settle down anyway. Now, now to the bad news. That was from a, an international multicenter registry of patients managed with the hemospray device. Remember, this is the device made by Cook, where you spray a gray powder onto the bleeding lesion it was a prospective study involving 12 international centers in Germany, England, and France, which over a period of 28 months recruited 314 patients. These patients had a median Rockall score of 7, and 100 of the 314 patients had a Forest 1B lesion. And to remind you, that's a peptic ulcer which I'm oozing from the ulcer. In patients with a peptic ulcer in either the esophagus, stomach, or duodenum, the lesions were treated with what the study authors called combination therapy, which actually, if you read the small print, was usually just adrenaline. Hold on a second, and I'm immediately kind of cooling off here. Standard endoscopic therapy of a bleeding peptic ulcer is adrenaline and heat. 
They used adrenaline followed by the hemospray and reported that the initial hemostasis rate was 87%. Now, the re-bleeding rate was particularly high in patients in whom the hemospray had been used as what they called the rescue therapy. That's, I presume, again, they're not really elaborating, presumably tried to stop the bleeding with standard therapy and couldn't do it, and then they spread hemospray and it seemed to settle. In this group of patients, uh, 19% had a re-bleed, which is, of course, the normal risk of re-bleeding. So to my mind, the hemospray didn't seem to do anything to reduce the risk of re-bleeding. Furthermore, the small group of patients who had hemospray used as the monotherapy had a higher 30-day all-cause mortality rate than average. The mortality rate in this group of patients was 25%. So in the conclusion of the study, the authors say that uh, our data show high rates of immediate hemostasis overall and in all the subgroups. And re-bleeding and mortality rates were in keeping or lower than predicted. Now the problem, of course, is that there was no control group. So we can't really make head and tail of this and of course, we know that the risk of re-bleeding is directly related to the type of lesion you're seeing. For example, a malarvised tear is very unlikely to re-bleed, even if you don't do anything to it. Um, a clean-based peptic ulcer will not re-bleed. It doesn't matter what you do with it. And in contrast, a peptic ulcer with a visible or a bleeding vessel is very likely to re-bleed, up to 20%. The mortality rate in published studies is usually kind of up to 15% or so. So to have 25% of their patients dying following treatment seems unusually high. Now, I suspect it's not actually because hemospray kills people. Of course, it's because you will reach for the hemospray gun probably when you see a, a bleeding cancer in the, in the stomach. And of course, it stops the oozing for a few hours and then it starts again. We know that endoscopically, there's very little we can do for patients with bleeding cancers in the patient should either be treated with uh, radiological embolization or perhaps with thalidomide. So sadly, we know further forward really in uh, knowing what the role is for the hemospray in acute upper GI bleeding. In my own mind, I would consider the hemospray in patients with unstoppable upper GI bleeding to temporarily stop the hemorrhage as the patient goes from the endoscopy room to the angiosuite. And that concludes this week's uh, lit review. I hope that you find something of interest and hope to catch up with you again next week when we will hear from Matarata about the National Endoscopy Database, first in the world. Until then, bye for now. Now, this podcast was supported by Pentax Medical.